If you have your Bibles, Ephesians 5 is this morning I, I, is where we're going to be. I, I would encourage you to grab a Bible, uh, begin looking for that passage as we will read it together here in just a bit. Uh, a couple Sundays ago during our town hall meeting, it was mentioned that you would prefer more sermons on sex. So you asked, and I am going to deliver that this morning for you. Now, now keep in mind, this has been scheduled for a couple months now, so maybe that was just the Lord preparing your hearts for this morning. Uh, um, but here we are. Now, I can't remember if I told this church this story or not, so if I have, I apologize. It's going to be a repeat for you. But when, when I first started dating Cena, I would occasionally um, visit her at her uh, parents' house, and, and we'd be sitting on the couch... Um, with her family, and, but the TV kept going silent, and then these closed captions would show up on the screen, and, and I had no idea what was going on, and it takes, kind of takes a while to get used to, you know, because you get into a rhythm of watching television, and um, they had this box attached to their TV called the Parent Guardian, and, and so anytime a curse word was said, uh, it would mute the TV, and then it would put on captions, you know, replace the word with something else. Um, my favorite was whenever someone would say the word sex, it would mute it and replace it with the word hugs. <laughs> it, it didn't matter if the context was correct or not. Sometimes when someone was just being asked what their gender was, you know, what, you know, what sex are you or whatever, it, it would mute it and replace it with hugs. And, and so needless to say, there's been many jokes throughout the years uh, regarding hugs. So with, with that being said... With that being said, I'm going to try to keep this topic kid-friendly, and at times I'm going to refer to immoral hugs, all right, and, and so that you will, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, for those of you that got Sandy's email, and for those of you that didn't, Sandy sent out an email this week to all the parents uh, encouraging the children to take notes as we go through this thing. And, and so you as a parent... Um, if, if you'll help them find the passage, help them find the Bible, and then encourage them. If the kids turn in their notes after the service, Sandy has uh, some sort of incentive for them. And so there's Bibles. There's plenty of Bibles all around uh, under the chair in front of you. Believe it or not, those are not just for decoration. All right, so let's use those things. We're going to read the first four verses together so, so that we understand the context this morning. But in reality, we're just covering verses 3 and 4. And so if you will stand as I read this as a way to honor the text, uh, just as the people did in Nehemiah. We're going to read the first four verses together. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that these words will seep into our hearts. And as we begin to study it, I pray that you will open our hearts and open our ears to hear your truth. I pray, Father, that the words that are said bring honor and glory to you. I pray that you will pierce, pierce our hearts with this truth this morning and help us see your love for us in it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. When, when I was growing up, uh, as a kid, teenager, whatever, uh, when my parents gave me the hugs talk, right, uh, it was simply, like the one I got was simply, don't do it until you, got, until you get married. 
I didn't even know what it was. I just knew that I wasn't supposed to be doing it. But much, much like our culture today, I grew up in a, uh, a hugs-obsessed school where that's what most people were talking about in some form or fashion, right? And, and, and so I was, I, I was and I still am the type of person that if you tell me not to do something, my curiosity is going to get the best of me because I need to know why. So, so I started out with a view on sex that was unbiblical, and it took me a long time to understand it and, and really kind of come to the point of, uh, point of view that was, that was God. So as I was preparing the sermon, I, I was writing it from the perspective of what I wish I knew when I was a teenager. And, and, and really even need to be reminded from time to time, even as an adult. So, so if I was talking to the teenage version of myself, the first thing I would want them to know is to not accept the culture's view on sex. Don't, don't accept it. But beginning all the way back to verse 22 in chapter 4, Paul has been writing about that we as followers of Jesus Christ need to take off our old way of life and put on new clothing that is consistent with our new life in Jesus. He has made it clear over and over again that we cannot continue to live the life that we once lived when we became Christians. This is not just for, not true just for us as individual believers, but this is true for us as the body of Christ, right? The church. And so then last week we looked at the first two verses of chapter 5, and in it we saw that as followers of Jesus, those who proclaim faith in him, we are to imitate God by loving others in the same way that Christ loved us. We are to be giving. We are to have a sacrificial love that, does, that, that loves even the unlovable, even those that are difficult, even those that speak ill against us. But Paul lived in a culture that was not altogether different from ours. It, it seems, as we understand more about Ephesus, that th- that city had totally blurred the distinction between love and sex. But the problem was so much more extensive than that. Now, back in Ephesus, there was this temple to the goddess Artemis. Uh, the Romans knew her as Diana. And, and the worship of Artemis was possible by a multitude of young priests or priestesses who, who gave their bodies to whoever could pay the price as an act of worship. And so the whole city accepted immoral hugs as an act of worship, right? And regarded it as normal and proper. And they even regarded it as religious. But Paul is going to try to fix their thinking. Notice that Paul says, within the body of Christ, these things shouldn't even be named. Literally, he writes that immoral hugs are not even to be named within the body of Christ. In other words, again, we are not to allow it to infiltrate the body in any form that there should not even be a hint of it in this place. Now, when you look at these verses, it's pretty obvious that Paul has arranged his instructions into two groups of three words. The first three deal with our actions and the second three deal with our words. And in both those areas, he makes it clear that we are to reject the world's view of sex. So the first action that Paul addresses is sexual immorality. This is the Greek word pornoneia, which is where we get our word pornography. When we examine these and other uses of this word, we find that it describes any kind 
any kind of sexual activity that occurs outside the confines of marriage. That very clearly includes premarital hugs, adultery, homosexual hugs, prostitution, and pornography. And even in the Ephesian culture of Paul's day, those practices had become completely acceptable and openly practiced without shame. Sound familiar? This is why we're going to address the elephant in the room and help you tackle the issue and and struggle of pornography. Because even though it might have been accepted in their culture, I don't think anyone is going to stand up and be proud of the fact that they are addicted to pornography. It's a source of shame, at least in the church. Two-thirds of our men and and one-third of our women have an issue with viewing pornography regularly. And, And I'm not saying that to bring shame. I'm saying that so that you know that you're not the only one. We want to help you overcome it. Pornography is in this church. So I've acknowledged it. So, so let's talk about it. If you are wanting help, we will provide you with any tools or resources we can. We, will, we can sign you up for a subscription to Covenant Eyes that you can install on your phone or install on your computer. We want this to be a safe place where you don't have to pretend that you aren't struggling. Some people go to the gym because they want to get in shape. Some people. Or they want to lose weight. People should come to church because they understand that they need some help. If there's anyone in this room that feels like they have it all together, you've overcome every addiction, you are walking on water, then then you and I need to switch places because I am for sure not there. This is a great place to not be okay if you want to get some help. The next item on Paul's list is impurity. This phrase is the very same word that Paul uses to describe the state of mind that leads to sexual impurity. So so what Paul is saying is not only do we need to fight off immoral hugs, but we need to be careful not to even think about it. Don't let your thoughts dwell on it. When I was in college, I had this roommate, as many of us did, right? And he was a really good guy. He, he, he's now a pastor in um, Arizona. Uh, and while we were living together, his longtime girlfriend would come and visit him. Now, they knew that they were going to get married, but they were at different uh, universities at the time, so they would see each other about once a month or so. After she left one time, we were sitting in the living room talking, and he shared with me that they went a little bit too far. Now, when you go to a Bible college and you're getting a degree in ministry, you can't just come right out and say what you did wrong. And so he would, he would put some sort of spirituality onto it, right? And if you've ever been to a Bible college, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I fell into temptation. I, I gave into my flesh. I crossed the Jordan, right? Whatever, whatever phrases you want to, to put a spiritual twist on it. Now, I don't remember what he said, But I knew what he meant. So I asked him to give me some more details. Not not to be a pervert, but to really just try and figure out how this happened. 
He says, well, we were sitting on the couch and we were watching a movie. Okay. Was the door open? Nope. Were you under one blanket? Yep. Were the lights on? Nope. Were you spooning? Yep. Well, what did you think was going to happen, right? You put yourself in that situation, it's going to happen. If you put a fox in a chicken coop, don't be surprised the next morning when they're all dead, right? And, and, and so I have to be careful with what I watch on TV. There, there are certain shows that can get my mind to go places that I don't want it to go. Now, I've never seen Game of Thrones. And, and the only reason being is that I've heard that there's a bunch of nudity in it. Now, some people might be able to handle that, and I'm not one of them. We have to pay attention to what you are thinking about. Now, the next one Paul calls covetousness or uh, greed. Now, he does not seem to be referring uh, so much to greed in terms of material possessions as much as he is writing about the idea of coveting another person in the sexual sense. Now, Jesus mentions this in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, right? But I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully at another is just as guilty. So if you allow your mind to wander and start thinking, oh, I wish that was my wife, I wish that was my husband, you are walking on dangerous ground that is going to be detrimental to your relationship. Do not let the enemy get a foothold in your life by believing that the grass is greener on the other side. Fight that off. The three words that Paul uses here to characterize the way that the world views hugs, it, they all have something in common. They all reflect the, if it feels good, do it mentality that pervades our culture. Immoral hugs, impurity, and covetousness are all a natural result of a culture that focuses on what's in it for me. What do I get out of this? How can I be happy quickly? And as we've already seen, that is a complete contrast to, to the kind of love that we are to exhibit when we are imitating the love of God. A love that is giving. A love that is selfless. A love that is focused on the needs of others as opposed to the needs of ourselves. The, the reason that, kind of, the, that the kind of hugs that Paul describes in this verse has become the God of our culture is because our self have become the God of our culture. And unfortunately, even in the church, we have bought in hook, line, and sinker to the lie that the reason that God has established the kinds of boundaries that Paul writes about here is because God is trying to rob us of something. And I hear all the time, well, God's just not any fun. He's putting all these boundaries around us. But, but nothing could be further from the truth. And I think John 10.10 10 applies here. He says, I've come that you might have life, right, and have it abundantly. The boundaries that God has established are actually intended to protect us and make sure that we receive all the blessings that God intends for us in regards to hugs. And although I don't need statistics from our own human experiences to prove that, there, there is certainly a, an abundance of evidence to confirm that God's principles do work. In his book, Marriage Savers, Mike McManus gives us a bunch of statistics that, that show that living biblically is better for your marriage. 
According to the National Survey of Family Growth, the odds of divorce grows by 60% for couples that engage in premarital hugs. You want to increase your chances of, of getting divorced? Have premarital hugs. A study by Columbia University shows that only 19% of couples that live together will end up married. Another study says that people who have premarital hugs run the chance of marrying someone who is not right for them because it makes couples feel closer than they actually are. It's not just a physical thing. I'll share one more. In spite of what the world is trying, may tell us, National Institutes of Health researcher David Larson found that couples who don't sleep together before marriage and who are faithful during marriage are more satisfied with their current hug life and with their marriages. They're, they're more satisfied in those areas compared to those who were sexually active before marriage. So, so you have the secular world confirming that the principles that God lays out in his word are better for you. We, we have to fight culture with our actions. But in verse 4, he also mentions our speech. The word is rendered filthiness, and it refers to any kind of disgraceful speech. In, in today's language, we call it all sorts of things, like, like potty mouth or whatever. It, it, it may be the kind of language that is acceptable on a construction site or acceptable in a locker room, but Paul makes it clear that it is not acceptable for those of us who claim to be a follower of Jesus. Unfortunately, this kind of obscenity seems to be more and more accepted in our culture. This week I was in AutoZone, uh, and, and the guy in front of me was having a discussion with the cashier, just, you know, just... I was like, come on, dude, let's wrap it up. But he was just having this discussion with the cashier. And, and he was going on and on and on. And it seemed like every other word, without exaggeration, was the F word. He just made it flow naturally. My question is, in my mind as I'm listening to all this, is why can't it just be called a starter? Why is it an effing starter? You know what I mean? Like, like it makes no sense to me. I, I almost don't want to take my kids to a junior high basketball game because of what's, what I'm hearing behind us, because it's filled with profanity. When, when you think about the conversations that you've had this week, does your speech imitate the love of God? I'll be the first to confess that mine has not this week. I need to be better. Then Paul mentions foolish talk. Foolish, as it's used here, refers to, to one who is foolish because he does not understand the things of God. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. In this context of this passage, it seems to refer to talk that ridicules God's standards for hugs. Now, we, we certainly don't have to look too hard to find that in our culture. It has become the norm on our televisions, in our schools, at our workplaces to glorify relationships that are not honoring to the Lord. We celebrate quick hookups. We celebrate living together. We celebrate crude joking. It seems everywhere I look, it is hard to see what God intended for our culture. We as believers need to be better. You set the example. 
There are a lot of dangers that maybe you're not even, even aware of when it comes to our speech. The first one being it doesn't take sin seriously. When, when we joke about that which is sinful, rather than condemn it, we are making light of the seriousness of that sin. The second thing is it allows us to push the envelope. Once we begin to engage in immoral speech, it becomes easier and easier to see just how far we can push the envelope. It's just like any other sin. When, when, when we try and find pleasure in our sin, it takes more and more of that to satisfy us. That's why the third thing is, is, it, is it leads to action. After a while, it's no longer adequate to just talk about immorality. So we actually move toward engaging in that behavior that we're talking about. Most affairs don't start with physical action. They begin by talking about things that two unmarried people should never discuss. The fourth thing is it demeans God's gift. Hugs in their proper context is a gift from God. And, and when we joke about it, we demean that gift. As we've seen consistently throughout Paul's letters, it's not just enough to reject the world's standards, but we need to replace it with something positive. We're not just taking off our old clothes, we're putting on new clothes. And, and so we're not re just rejecting the world's view of sexuality, we're going to do something positive with it. And, and, and to do that, we must be thankful so, so Paul says, rather than doing what our culture is doing, we should be thankful for what he has given us. Paul could have used a number of different approaches to deal with this topic. He could have merely reminded his readers of the Old Testament commandments that dealt with things like adultery or covetousness. He could have pointed out all the benefits of following God's principles rather than the ways of the world. His readers were faced with a choice. Just like you and I are faced with a choice. We could either place their own selfish desires on the throne of their hearts and be just like the rest of the world, or they could put God on the throne of their hearts and follow God's plans for their lives. We make that choice each and every day. So, so what is it that we are to be thankful for? Now, certainly given the context, we need to be thankful for the self, selfless love of Christ that Paul described in verse 2, which provides the means for us to even have a relationship with God. But then in the more immediate context of verses 3 and 4, I think there's something more here. Although immorality and impurity have, have distorted how sex is viewed in our culture, sex itself is a gift from God to man. It, it's a gift which is like a great flowing river through our lives. As long as that river remains in its banks, within the covenant of marriage, it is a great source of pleasure. It's a great source of power. It's a great source of refreshment. But if it's allowed to overflow its banks, it becomes destructive, which can produce great and lasting damage. Sex is also like a fire. Now, many of you have fireplaces in your home, and, and, and when the fire is contained within its structure, it provides warmth. It provides enjoyment. 
But if that fire escapes from that fireplace, or somebody forgets to open up the flu, as has been experienced recently, it can be uncontrollable. It can ruin everything. It can burn the house down. When we are thankful for God's gift of sex in our lives, then we will seek to use it to please and honor him. And in return, we'll experience an abundant life full of joy, an abundant life full of intimacy. But when we allow it to be distorted so that it escapes the boundaries of marriage, it will become an uncontrollable, destructive force in our life. Now, I don't know where you stand on this topic. If you are like me, you have made some destructive mistakes when it comes to this topic throughout my life. And so this, this message, this passage, isn't to bring shame on you. It's to remind you that even though we've messed up, Christ still died for us. Even though you have a past, even though you're walking in sin, the offer on the table is abundant life. The offer on the table is forgiveness. The offer on the table is to walk in freedom. And so if you feel condemned this morning, that is not the goal. The goal is for you to recognize your sin and call upon the name of the Lord for forgiveness because that's the offer on the table. And as we get ready to celebrate communion, I want you to dwell on that reality. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as you speak to our hearts, as we come together as a church family and take communion, I pray, Father, that you will Remind us as we take the elements of how much we are loved by you. God, I pray that people, your children in this place, will find healing. Will find abundant life and forgiveness this morning. And so, Father, we pray that you just... Surround us with your presence. Fill us with your spirit as we look to the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.